this is our pre-recording, Paul. So we can, we, I can give your exact address out on air if you want. I feel like we probably should. <laughs> I get like, I get several emails each week requesting where where your address is, Paul. So I haven't given it out yet, but now maybe I will. Welcome back to The Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, uninterrupted, meaning Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham is not joining us tonight. But don't fret, uh, I am here with Dr. Paul Williams. Hi, Paul. Hey, Matt. How's it going? It's going very well. We just had, <laughs> we just had a long conversation with Dr. Brooke Worcester. She is an assistant professor of medicine at the Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University. She is also the medical director of palliative care services at Thomas Jefferson University Hospitals. She completed an internal medicine residency and chief residency at Temple University Hospital before going on to a pain and palliative medicine fellowship at Massachusetts General Hospital. I asked her here this evening because I feel that Having difficult conversations around hospice and palliative medicine is quite challenging and also can be one of the most rewarding things you can do as a physician. Brooke is here to teach us about how to broach some of these difficult conversations. We also talk about symptom management at the end of life and uh, what exactly home hospice looks like because I know that's something that most of us don't have much exposure to during our training, and it's helpful to know what we're sending patients to. So with all that being said, please enjoy our conversation with Dr. Brooke Worcester. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm your host, Dr. Matthew Watto, here with co-host, Dr. Paul Williams. Hey, Matt. How are you? I, I'm doing well, Paul. And uh, sorry that Stuart is not here tonight, but we have a great guest, Dr. Brooke Worcester. She is an assistant professor of medicine at Jefferson Medical College, where she is the medical director of the palliative care service. Hi, Brooke. How are you? Hi, guys. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Well, we're very happy to have you on the show because uh, palliative care, hospice medicine definitely or hospice and palliative medicine, as y'all call it, is is very uh, dear to my heart, and I think something that we really need to train our train our people better in. So we're glad to have you here to teach us a little bit about that. Thanks, I couldn't agree more. We will get all into that, but always <laughs> I do like to start with asking you some other questions, uh, just more general questions. Uh, this one's a new one, so. If you had to describe yourself in a one-liner, the kind that we do for patients on rounds, uh, what would you say, just so our audience can get a better sense of who you are? Yikes. All right. I guess I have to admit my age. Um, I am a 36-year-old. Okay. Ooh. <laughs> I'll be honest. 36-year-old uh, female internist um, at heart who practices cancer pain management and palliative medicine um, and adores her job, um, wife and mother of two little girls who does her best to try to juggle and kind of keep things running sort of smoothly. Great answer. You sound, sound very busy. <laughs> 
aren't we all? Yeah. What would you say, uh, you, you mentioned it a little bit there, what would you say within hospice and palliative medicine, what is really your, the thing that you would say you're best at? Hmm. Honestly, I think I'm best at being pretty down to earth and honest with patients and connecting with them. I think I did it before and that was kind of what ended up drawing me to this. Well, we'll definitely need you to teach us some of that uh, as we get further on into the interview here. What is a book that you can recommend to our listeners that that you think they should read? Good question. So I think, you know, as of this past year, there's probably a new one that might top my list, kind of from the palliative care bent. Um, Dr. Paul Kalanithi wrote a book called When Breath Becomes Air, which is phenomenal. He was eloquent and well-spoken, and I think it really sort of speaks to how to live when you're seriously ill. I I read, uh, I read the synopsis of that one because uh, I was considering reading it. it. I was a little worried it was going to make me too sad. Is that a major concern that I should have? <laughs> you know, it's not. And I think that's why it's so brilliant. And, and, you know, my family and friends who laugh and, and sort of say to me every day, like, how in the hell do you do what you do? Um, and I, I tell them, read this. And they said the same thing. And, and most of them came back to me saying, you know what, the best part about this book is that, yeah, there were parts of it that were sad, but it leaves you really feeling more enlightened than sad. Okay, I will. I will take your recommendation. I'll try and read it. Uh, I'll let you. I'll let you know how that turns out. Let me know. Yeah. Let me know. Paul laughing at me because I'm afraid of a book. Come on, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) That just feels right. That's all. (laughs) Thanks, Paul. Brooke, are there any specific medical apps that you really like? Something like an Hippocrates that you can recommend? I, I am not that app sort of geeky, I, Hippocrates is really kind of my go-to from an app perspective. Nothing for like calculating morphine equivalents or something like that that you can recommend? No, that's really where I geek out in that like, I feel like you have to learn opioids really well and then you just know them. I don't, I don't use calculators. I, I sort of know the equivalents and I do kind of cross products in old school style. Wow. Good for you. Sorry. Yeah. It's just how I was taught in that way. But yeah, I I haven't found like in a productivity sense that any other apps help me. I no longer remember the times tables. Uh, I'm not sure about Paul. (laughs) Yeah. Those I got everything else. I probably use my iPhone for. Yeah. Brooke, one of the last questions I have for you in this uh, upfront round here, what are you reading if someone, if one of our listeners wants to stay current on the, the evidence in hospice and palliative medicine, what, what should they be reading and what do you read? Well, I should be reading probably way more broadly than, than I do, but I'll be honest, I think there's some great, more and more impressively, some, some great articles and reviews that come through bigger name things like... New England Journal. In general, the um, hospice, or I mean, I'm sorry, uh, pain and symptom management is one of the better sort of journals of palliative care. And then um, kind of doing 
other med searches and, and seeing what pops up all across the spectrum because palliative medicine isn't sort of limited to one thing, right? So sometimes I'm reading something in Mayo Clinic proceedings, sometimes it's New England Journal, sometimes it's, you know, a dedicated cardiology or GI journal. So it, the easier way to do it is just sort of set like the journal watch um, notifications for palliative medicine. You can put that as a keyword and, and that's what I think is, is the most helpful to sort of stay up to date. So I think that's that actually is a good jumping off point. Uh, Brooke, you mentioned that palliative care is such sort of a broad topic. I wonder, I mean, just just speaking very broadly, I know many of our listeners probably know this already, but I feel like it, it's, it always bears repeating. Could you just maybe explain and differentiate um, palliative care and hospice for us in sort of broad Wikipedia terms what each of those things are? Yeah, absolutely, because I think that's one of the things that's the biggest disservice to the specialty is that, you know, because hospice has become a taboo word, when people talk about it a lot, they say, you know, you need palliative care when they're talking about hospice. So in reality, I tell, you know, patients and families, my palliative medicine is for anyone with serious illness at any stage in the illness. I help with symptom management, sort of the side effects of whatever your illness is, right? Those side effects are uh, physical, they're emotional, they're financial, they're social, they're spiritual. Um, so that's sort of an extra layer of support. And the other piece is that as you get more increasingly sort of medically complex, the communication gets increasingly difficult and anxiety inducing. So additional support as far as talking through next steps is my other role in sort of the palliative care hat. Hospice is a medical benefit that your insurance um, entitles everyone to. It's also a philosophy of care that really is sort of talking about end of life, right? So the last six months of life as per, you know, Medicare rules, but, you know, with flexibility, but talking about maximizing quality of life and keeping people out of the hospital at the end of life. That's that spectrum of sort of the palliative care world. Okay. And do you feel it's helpful to present those things as sort of two discrete options or sort of a spectrum of care? I kind of say it's a spectrum of care, right? So it's it's my job to take care of people anywhere along that spectrum. The thing that I really think we need to make, you know, abundantly clear to patients and providers um, in our death avoidant culture is that it's not talking about, you know, now we're giving up, quote unquote, or now we're, you know, talking about you dying, that that's not what it is, that it can be, you know, someone from the palliative care world seeing you concomitantly with getting a diagnosis or, you know, increasingly seeing um, cancer survivors, right? We're doing a better job at keeping people alive, but kind of what do you do then? Because you sort of always have these residual effects of a serious illness. Brooke, I do want to talk about in cancer, it seems like it's people are more used to associating the the palliative care with with getting a cancer diagnosis or at least thinking about the two together when you have some of these diseases like heart failure or COPD or or chronic kidney disease that are not as commonly probably especially by the public thought of as illnesses that might meet requirements for for being on hospice or for receiving palliative care um 
I wanted to talk maybe through a case that I, that I saw that was tough for me and, and maybe you can give us points on like where you would have done things differently. Uh, so this, this case was when I was fresh out of residency, starting at Cashlack Memorial hospital, and I've changed the age and the sex of the patient and the, uh, some of the particulars of the story just for HIPAA purposes. I, I don't know if Paul and I told you in the pre-recording, but we we say we work at Cashlack Memorial Hospital, which is a fake hospital named after. Uh, well, it just it's a funny name, but it, it is a family name on my side actually. Uh, so so we say we work there, and that way we can get around the HIPAA issues. I like it. it this was let's say this is a woman in her early eighties. She has heart failure with a ejection fraction of twenty percent and diabetes that's not well controlled with neuropathy, chronic kidney disease, stage three on the borderline of stage four, and also vascular dementia, AFib, still on anticoagulation, basically wheelchair bound, and not very interactive anymore. And uh, this lady came in with her husband and her adult son, and I had seen them for the first time after a hospital admission for heart failure, and this family is asking me about heart transplant. They're asking me about assist devices. Uh, what, what sort of things can we do to make, to make mom more interactive? Why does she sleep all the time? And I'm immediately mm-hmm. thinking this is somebody that is at the end of life. They need palliative care, but the family is really clearly not even thinking that they're thinking that this is reversible. They're thinking they want full court press. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you even begin to breach the subject with a family like this? So it's interesting because, right, so you, you named all of these, you know, chronic, you know, for lack of a better term, but terminal illnesses, right? So we don't fix heart failure in people, you know, the vast majority of people don't go to transplant. You don't cure dementia, certainly. But when we initially broach the subject of this with our patients and their families, we don't phrase it that way. So we don't sort of start preparing people for this is going to be something that's progressively going to get worse and ultimately, you know, at some point kill you because that feels devastating to talk to people. So you already start behind the eight ball, right? So you as the hospitalist, you're you're sort of given a, a tough job to say, okay, now what do we do, right? So I think a lot of what I tell people all the time when, and this is sort of, of one of the best parts, I think, of, of being a, in the world of palliative medicine is that I love talking to and teaching other people about this. And you go through your medical training and you sort of get this, this thing that I, I term doctor brain. You lose sort of normal person brain. And I think so much of trying to connect with patients and families about these sort of more difficult conversations has little to do at times with being a doctor or using your doctor brain, right? So if you can stop thinking that way and start sort of trying to connect as a person, right? So just be curious, sit down and talk with this family and say, what are you hoping for? Right. And and usually the first thing that gets thrown out is like mom to get better or mom's heart to be cured or this or that. Right. And so just keep being curious. What else are you hoping for? 
what if we can't fix that? What what then is most important, right? It's not sort of talking through the medical specifics with them, but it's starting at a place where you can connect with them as a person. So what are you worried about? What are you hoping for? Um, tell me even what have the other doctors told you to expect for mom, right? To get a sense of where do we even stand from like an illness awareness perspective? Because I think if you can kind of meet them where they are initially, on the level of just our hopes and fears as humans, you can really ask them what they're hoping for from her care, not what we're trying to do medically to fix or cure something at this point. And I, I think part of part of the mistake, so this is this is now several years ago that this happened, but I was ready to go in there and start suggesting scaling back medications and, and had forgotten mm-hmm had forgotten to do that part or, or probably was not taught and didn't know that I should have done that and, and kind of gotten that information up front because I think mm-hmm. it took a very long time. It took a very long time for, for this family to get on the same page as me. And mm-hmm. uh, it was very, it was a very challenging because they were uh, constantly pressing for more consults and more uh, they were constantly taking mom into the hospital even though clearly mm-hmm. mom had no idea what was going on, did not want to be in the hospital. And, uh, it was, it was difficult because there was no advanced directive. There was no, there was no, um, medical power of attorney. And the husband was not necessarily, um, he probably had some dementia himself. So this adult, mm-hmm. adult child was not the official decision maker, but was sort of imposing yeah. their wishes. So it became a very complicated situation. And uh, well, I was going to say I would have I, liked to have started from where you were telling us to start from. Well, you know, and Matt, you're saying this is a difficult case, right? Because there's other layers of complexity there. So we have good evidence that shows us that surrogate decision makers make different decisions than patients make for themselves and even that they would choose for themselves if they were making a decision for themselves, right? So when you ask family members kind of what would mom want, you have that added layer of both guilt of I don't want to make a decision that kills mom if, if you know, if it's going to that extreme um, and that sort of from a an emotional perspective, I don't want to lose this person that I love, right? So it's really difficult to ask a surrogate decision maker to step back and say, I need you to help me because your mom can't talk to me right now. But if she could, what would she tell me that she wants, right? Is this an okay quality of life for her? And that's hard, you know, and, and there's a lot of decisional conflict um, and sort of emotional distress that occurs for surrogate decision makers when there's been no prior discussions, no documented advanced directives, like you're saying. So, you know, you are walking into a difficult, you know, a difficult situation with sort of added layers of complexity there. So I think that's one of the harder cases, especially because it's not something that people look at as a terminal illness. Like you mentioned, it's, you know, cancer, people sort of say, oh gosh, I get it. You get that and and you die from it. But people don't equate heart failure and dementia and and other things like that with things that actually kill you. (laughs) Well, 
and and you reminded me of something else. I think using uh, using this that that example there, saying when you want to talk to a a patient who can still make their own decision, they don't yet have this uh, plan in place. They don't have their advanced directive or living will. I think you can kind mm-hmm. of leverage that and say, I want to talk to you. You're mm-hmm. doing well right now. Um, this is your annual checkup. I just want to check in with you and say, listen. Um, do you have an advanced directive? Do you have a medical power of attorney? Because if you don't, I think we should fill this out because you're doing well right now. And have you ever known anybody that's been through, um, who's been on hospice or and if you know ever known anyone who's been sick in the hospital on a ventilator? And because I would want you to tell your family now what you would want. And sometimes I'll get lucky and the family will say, oh, yeah, we, we had a family member, and I wouldn't want to go through that, so I know what I would want. And then it makes the conversation easier. Well, I think mm-hmm. to Brooke's point, to sort of going to where folks are, like I, just, I, love, I love that that's your emphasis because I feel like, especially the inpatient side, too often we sort of send the interns in the room like soldiers off to war, like just get in there and get that DNR. Um, yeah. And there's just there's no preamble. There's no relationship establishment. There's no <laughs> conversation about things. It's sort of – Hi, I'm going to be the doctor taking care of you. And if your heart were to stop, would you want to do chest compressions? Which is an insane way to approach it or to expect any kind of reasonable conversation. So I just I think that's just great advice in almost any context. Brooke, I was going to ask if you're aware, Paul. Paul and I were. I was trying to remember where I had heard this before. I think it was a TED Talk or TED Radio Hour. They they talked about there's a town somewhere in the U.S. where they had done this pilot study where. It, I think like 95% of the people ended up filling out the five five wishes. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So it's Gunderson, Wisconsin, I believe. But I'm sorry, those of you out here there who know, and I'm wrong about the state. I might be wrong. But the town is Gunderson. And so what they did, it's called Respecting Choices. Um, they said, listen, we're going to make this sort of a population initiative, which is, is really what it should be, right? So it has to be something that comes out of the hands of an individual doctor to have the conversation um, because we, we have 100% mortality rate in this country, right? So it affects us all. We can't avoid this. And they said, we are going to address this with every person and we're going to do it interdisciplinarily. So they had social workers sort of leading the drive of filling out advanced directives. And they got people at their primary care office. They got them when they were not critically ill at a time that they could think through it. And it was overwhelmingly successful. You know, it's amazing because think about it. In what study do you ever hear that 98% of people ended up sort of completing what the assigned task was and sort of having positive feedback about it. But that was exactly what happened. So they had a a universal sort of repository that everybody could access this then. So it was, you know, something that all of us should be striving to replicate. It's a shame that that hasn't kind of spread to it to becoming a national model. And, and did they, I'll have to look up that study. Uh, was it published as a study? Cause I can link it in the show notes and that way people can look and see like what paperwork they were using or what educational tools they were using in their methods to, uh, to get it out there. Yeah. So they published a bunch of studies, but if you just actually look up respecting choices, you'll see they have, um, they have a whole program that you can actually purchase, um, to have them come and do it. It's Michigan. I was wrong. It's Gunderson, Michigan. Um, 
Wisconsin, Michigan. They're so close. Same difference. Um, <laughs> None of us yeah. are from the Midwest, Brooke, so we won't, we won't take offense. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll skip over that. But they have a program that has then been sort of bought and implemented by other things. Like um, I think Kaiser uses it um, and some other ones out there, sort of integrated health systems have – kind of utilize their resources. But if you look that up, you'll see there's tons of different um, articles they've published. It's not just one. It's become a, a huge program. Let's say with our, our we're at the point where someone has, um, we can use my case, let's say somehow I've convinced the family to fill out a living, a living will, an advanced directive, and it's getting, it's getting to the point now where they're willing to think about hospice. I guess the my two questions here are what what's how do you counsel patients about what exactly happens on home hospice and mm-hmm. how long does that last? Is it renewable? That's often a question. Whenever I'm talking about it, you say six months. Patients always say, well what happens after six months if they're still alive? Yeah. Right. Because so much of this is it's a great question because so much of this is about our our word choice, right? And it's all about communication. So you have to, no matter what, help patients and families maintain hope and help them sort of realize that both of you guys are on the same side, kind of looking at this together. So even in saying like, well, I want you to be the person that sort of outlives that six months, right? So I tell people that, and and I do, I, I say very plainly, First and foremost, hospice is an insurance benefit that you are entitled to because if you boil it down to the nuts and bolts, that's what it is. Um, But it's also a philosophy of care. So their goal is to sort of help you every day say, what does a good day look like to me and how can we help that happen? So they're going to sort of let you lead the charge and then they're going to help take care of whatever symptoms arise, whether it's, you know, difficulty with breathing, whether it's sadness, whether it's family anxiety, whether it's some financial issue that they, you know, they need to help get you in touch with the right person. There's a a team of uh, providers who come out to your house led 90% of the time by a nurse. Um, It also includes an aide, social worker, chaplain, plus minus volunteers and other sort of therapists as needed. And then a physician or nurse practitioner is available um, and sort of runs the team as you need it. Um, and they're there to help you. They're not at your house every hour of every day, because I think that's something that unfortunately sometimes gets sold to people and then families get disappointed in the experience. Um, it's not an around the clock sort of caretaking service, but they're available 24 seven, which is great. So if if, you know, mom starts having distress at, you know, Friday night at 11 o'clock, you call them and someone can work through things with you over the phone and come out to the house if needed. Um, and obviously, I always say to people with the six months thing, um, you know, in reality, if you were asking me if your disease follows an expected trajectory, I would tell you that I think you probably have six months or less to live. That being said, I love being wrong. 
And I hope that you sort of outlive that. And when you do, you recertify hospice. It's not like a benefit that you run out of. So people have actually unlimited six-month period as long as they continue to have some functional decline. That's great. I, I think the thing that I wanted to highlight there, um, so unfortunately, in the past few months, I have had a family member on hospice and mm-hmm. uh, who, who died in December. And knowing, knowing now what that's like firsthand, helping yeah. to, having been able to help take care of that person, even as a physician, during the past, the last few days of life, I was somewhat intimidated because we, we send patients out of the hospital all the time on hospice, but not really knowing uh, what, what you see death in the hospital a little bit, but it's a little different when it's at home on hospice and you're the person actually administering the medications. So I do want to get a little bit under the hood of what comes in the, the hospice kit there. And, and I also want to just highlight for the listeners, you really have to think the the family is going to be responsible for the twenty four seven care. They'll have someone come by, either several days a week to help, maybe like a nurse's aide type to help bathe the person or just help with some basic ADLs. But the nurse is going to be available by phone, but they're not going to be there every day, caring for the patient around the clock. That would have to be paid for out of pocket uh, by the family. So it's really the family members that are doing it. So you have to size up the family members because I'll tell you, depending on the patient. Me even as an as a physician, it was not necessarily an easy task, and part of that was probably my emotional attachment uh, to the patient. But yeah, but I mean, if you you make such a great point, Matt, if you think about it that way, you were in the top what point one percent of family members who know what they were doing medically are very capable of taking care of someone and it's still really difficult, right? So we have to be honest with our patients and our families. This is not something that is easy. It's emotionally draining, right? So for the family, it's, it becomes a marathon. It's not a sprint. You have to sort of pace yourself and be willing to kind of reach out for every support that you can possibly get. So, so much of, I feel like what I, I often sort of have conversations with people about is saying, like, let's talk realistically about what this looks like at home, because taking care of someone at home is in some ways so rewarding and also so much difficult, so much more difficult and, and so much more challenging in ways than it is in the hospital. And in our culture nowadays, that's not where most people die. It's certainly not where most general, you know, of the general public has actually even seen what death looks like in that setting. So it just, it takes a lot of, I think, education and and really being able to say, like, let's talk specifics here about what this is like, because, you know, we, you guys, we did training together. I don't remember getting one minute of training about kind of what unique end-of-life symptoms are like. So if none of of the physicians that are helping take care of a patient know or are educated about that, how in the world do we think family members are going to be able to feel confident identifying a symptom and then managing it? Because that's what you're asking them to do. And it's certainly not impossible by any means. I think 
it can be done really well. It just it takes a lot of, of sort of patience and education and guidance, I think. And and I I think we I think it would be valuable. Um, yeah, this is this episode's a little dark for the curbsiders, but it I think it's a very important topic, and I think it's going to be valuable because I in the past few weeks I've had some conversations with residents and uh, asking them, do you know what's in a hospice kit? Have you ever seen patients on home hospice? And the answer has been no for most of these people. So I, I and and a lot of our listeners are. Um, in early in training and 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 may not have taken care of of people on hospice or or family members on hospice. So let let's go let's talk about what comes in in like your standard hospice kit. I'm I'm not sure if they're all exactly the same, but what sort of things are in there and and doses and and if you could kind of give run us through that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, just to sort of say one thing because I feel like this is is one of the biggest areas where where I I don't know. I guess I just I feel like look at it differently if if you can a little bit with people and that it's it is dark. I get it. I agree. Death is not sort of a light subject, but from a provider or physician perspective, I think it's an inevitable thing that you're going to take care of of people that are dying no matter what, right? So if you can actually be present and help family members and patients during that time, it's an amazingly profound impact that you can have on someone and, and a whole family that will take that with them sort of for the rest of their life as the story of this. So it doesn't necessarily have to be dark, right? It can be this really sort of, I think, different experience than feeling like it's, it's either sort of dark or a failure or anything. But that, sorry, on a tangent, that's just sort of my soapbox. Um, no, if I could actually well, hop on, I don't want to hear about the hospice yeah. kit, but I, I feel like there's maybe some vestigial paternalism. You know, oftentimes I feel like we try to sort of rush patients into the decision that we would want for them, which is often, mm-hmm. you know, hospice care in this particular situation. And I do worry, I, I like so much what you said about how, what does a good day look like to you and how can we get you to that day? As opposed to, I think more often I, I see hospice sold as you get increased services at home. And that we're yeah. sort of trying to sort of sell the patients and the families on it that way, which I think is actually a disservice to the overall philosophy and what you're trying to accomplish. And I think that's where you have a little bit of um, probably miscommunication. And that's where things kind of tend to break down when, when the symptoms yeah. do arise. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that this is sort of the last area of real discomfort of, you know, patient-physician communication, right? We can have a conversation about someone's vagina without blanching, but when you ask a resident to go talk to someone about the fact that they're dying or I'm worried that you might die, it's, it is it is you know woefully sort of either badly done, anxiety-inducing, you know, not well taught. So I truly think this is sort of the last area that we are failing kind of our learners as far as how to do this well and not have a stigma attached to it or have our own anxiety and, and you know, discomfort with, with having these difficult conversations um, sort of bleed into the fact that we just don't do it then. Yeah, right. Brooke, and you're, you, you reminded me, uh, so I have, I have three little boys. Um, so they, they would love my job because within 30 seconds of meeting like 
almost all my patients, they're like telling me what their bowel movements look like. But <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's like hard to it's hard to talk to people about uh, death and dying. Um, and and it's probably just because I, I guess the more you do these things, the the easier it becomes. But I am I th- I had I think probably the most rewarding. Uh, some of the most rewarding moments I've had in my life and certainly in my career as a physician have been in dealing with death and dying more so than anything else that I've done, you know, curing pneumonia with an antibiotic, big deal. But if you, if you help a family, if you help a family through, uh, uh, through this kind of thing, it's tremendously rewarding and definitely worth the time. Yeah. I mean, and you know, it's funny, I, I, I say this to the residents that I work with that, I think struggle a lot with feeling like they failed somehow when someone dies. And, you know, we all know the reality is the opposite of that, right? You couldn't prevent this. You know, I, there's, you know, the very rare incidents of like medical errors and stuff, but that has nothing to do with 99.9% of deaths. It's inevitability. But if you can help that family sort of walk away with having whatever their narrative needs to look like for it to sort of be a good death. And you sort of walked with them through that. They'll forever remember you, right? They might not know your name, but they'll say like that doctor was great. And you're right. No one's ever going to be like that doctor that gave me that Cipro prescription (laughs) for my UTI was amazing. (laughs) Like it just, it doesn't even compare. So I I think that uh, getting getting back on to so we 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 wanted to talk about hospice. What's hospice, in the kit? Yes. What's in the kit, and and what are the okay. last what are the symptoms like the last few days or weeks that we're managing? And I think that will be really helpful to the listeners because most of our trainees spend lots of their time either in clinic or on on the hospital yeah. wards, and they're not at home with the patients seeing this. So. Home medicine is so different, and outpatient medicine in general, but it's so different than, than hospital medicine. So, you know, it is is sort of so foreign. Um, but in a hospital e-kit, they call it, which is just stands for emergency kit, it's fairly kind of standard because hospice is very regulated from an insurance perspective and a reimbursement, so it's a per diem reimbursement. So they definitely are somewhat very, somewhat, I would say, to very attuned to sort of cost um, benefit ratio there. So the e-kit is a standard thing that everybody gets, and it includes liquid morphine. It includes some form of a a liquid or a pill, benzodiazepine, usually lorazepam. Um, It includes some some sort of... um, medication to use for drying secretions, um, an anticholinergic, usually um, atropine drops at home, and then it'll have uh, some kind of a uh, suppository for nausea that is sort of hit or miss what it is, Phenergan for a lot of people. Um, And then plus or minus um, Haldol usually is always included um, and and should probably be used more than it is. for treatment of, of delirium, which is pretty common at the end of life, um, terminal delirium. And, and that's realistically kind of, I would say, 95% of what's typically included in an e-kit. 
medication wise there's you know then there's the number to the hospice that they sort of say put on our refrigerator or somewhere and is available 24/7 um but it, it that's sort of the standard medicines that are there that if someone's walking you through things over the phone a family member can be instructed as to how to give and uh the morphine there it, it's usually the 20 milligrams per ml super concentrated mm-hmm. morphine mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. if you're given so just for for listeners even with patients even with patients who have dysphagia or aren't swallowing just dripping it under their tongue they're going to some of that's going to get in there yeah and and actually so we talk about this whole sublingual phenomenon. None of these things are actually lipophilic. So in reality, if if you're wanting to teach people how to dose it, it's better to not tell someone to drop it under someone's tongue because if, if you're dying and you have dry mouth, that's not going to actually get to where you need it to be. So it's really better to say drip it into the back of their mouth as far as you can because it actually is more reliant on it getting down into people's GI tract for absorption that it actually is something that's lipophilic that could go through like your oral mucosa. Hmm. Well, this is why we have you on Brooke to teach us these things. So what else? uh, So for, does that go for all the meds in the hospice kit? uh, For the most part, you kind of towards the back of the throat there. Yeah. Yeah. So unless something specifically formulated to be an ODT or an oral dissolving tab, it's not it's not something that's actually going to be absorbed through like buccal mucosa as well as it's going to be through someone's GI tract. Um, so you want to drip it to if it's a liquid, you want to drip it to the back of the mouth or if it's a pill, you crush it um, and put it in something that you can kind of put into the back of people's mouths to get them to swallow. The other sort of not as pretty, but equally efficacious way to give people any kind of pill is you can give it per rectal. So nobody wants to, or per rectum, nobody wants to think about that, but, you know, it's the same GI tract that does absorb these things. So if you're desperate and you have to get medications into someone, you can always put whole pills um, into someone's rectum and they will be absorbed as long as they're not then having a bowel movement. They don't, they don't have to be crushed or or you crush them or you just, oh, okay. No, they actually can get broken down and absorbed because if, if, um, if you think about it in that way, there's there's still some of, you know, there's still sort of those same GI tract enzymes that, you know, it's not as concentrated as it is in the stomach, but it will still break down medications um, rectally that can be absorbed then systemically. And what sort of doses are we generally going to be using for, let's say, towards the end of life, uh, this, this patient that we were talking about in our case with heart failure is experiencing mm-hmm. air hunger? What sort of medications and what doses would you be trying at least to start? So, um, good question. The evidence and sort of even pathophysiologically what medications are are proven to work with uh, dyspnea and air hunger are are sort of a combination of opioids and benzos. So, you want to really use both of them. And then, I mean, dosing and what medication we're talking about is, is definitely variable. Is someone opioid naive? Do they have renal failure? Like, you know, all of those things sort of should be taken a little bit into account. But if, if you know, everything else being equal and you're just sort of saying in general, I say start with five milligrams of an oral morphine um, or an equivalent of that. And then a half a milligram of lorazepam or sort of an equivalent benzo dose to that. And, you want to get it into someone as quickly as you can because 
you know, obviously air hunger is something you want to treat as quickly as possible. So if they're awake and alert and it's a pill, tell them to chew it. That increases absorption, you know, otherwise a liquid form and making sure you're getting it down their throat. Um, and then repeat those doses in 15 minutes if, if the dyspnea is not relieved. Right. And uh, what other symptoms, what other symptoms do you commonly see when someone's on home hospice towards their last few days or weeks that, that, that need to be treated from the hospice kit and that, that you can foresee? So um, in the last days of life, two sort of more uniquely, um, more unique symptoms to kind of the active dying phase are one, terminal delirium, which if it's kind of the hypoactive variant where people aren't restless or agitated or distressed, you don't necessarily have to treat it. Um, that's actually where you often see people talking to or communicating or, or sort of citing loved ones or relatives that have died. Um, and for what it's worth, there's, you know, just, I think, enough sightings of this and it even written up in, in medical evidence that there's, there's something that kind of can't be explained there, but you don't have to treat that necessarily. But the hyperactive version is what you need to be aggressive in treating. And when you're seeing someone being restless, sort of grabbing at things, you're worried that they're going to fall out of bed or wherever they are, picking at their sheets, things like that, treat it and treat it aggressively with antipsychotics, not benzos. So that's where you use the Haldol um, and you want to dose it, you know, at least you're giving it PRN and seeing how someone's doing and then you want to dose it sort of at least daily, if not twice or three times a day standing. Um, and you're going to use, you know, starting with if they're sort of naive and haven't had any other antipsychotics in their system, half a milligram of Haldol to a milligram is a good starting dose. Um, the other pretty prevalent symptom is what is sort of unfortunately termed as the death rattle. I don't describe it to families as that, but it's that sort of gurgle that people get. And all it is, is actually as your autonomic nervous system is shutting down, you're losing the coordination of swallowing. So whatever saliva people have, they, it pulls in the back of, of their soft palate, and then you hear the air when they breathe go through it. Um, I describe it to families as sort of like if you're drinking a milkshake through a straw and you get to the bottom of the cup, sort of the end of what you're sucking out, that's what it sounds like. Um, it's not uncomfortable for patients, but family members get really distressed hearing that and thinking like, oh my God. Are they having trouble breathing? What's going on? And that's something that is, is sort of also very easily treatable. And that's that anticholinergic, the atropine. That's why they include those atropine drops or things like that that you can use to sort of help dry up those secretions. In my experience, and this is probably the part that was most distressing uh, watching my family member was... Um, I'm trying to remember the eponym for the type of breathing that I was witnessing. I don't think it was Shane Stokes. Yes, Shane Stokes breathing, where they take a few sort of shallow deep breaths and then a pause and then like a really deep breath. Right. Yes, that was it. Yes. So this was going on for probably 36 hours before, mm -hmm. and this was quite rapid in the initially in the 40s and I gave a whole bunch of this stuff and the breathing slowed down into the 20s but I could never get it down l lower despite I, what I thought was giving pretty large doses towards mm -hmm. the end 
and I had called, and as a physician, this, this kind of thing actually led me to just call, check in with the hospice nurses a couple times and just say, this is what I'm seeing. And yeah. they told me that as long as my family member was not alert or moving around, as long as they were appeared to be asleep and otherwise were comfortable mm-hmm. just to kind of go stay the course that I was doing and not nothing else happened. So that's basically what we did. That's another sort of very good point, and, and that breathing pattern change can 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 and and is very distressing to family members. So, like I, what the hospice nurses said makes sense. And and as long as someone isn't using accessory muscles to breathe or otherwise grimacing or looks like they're uncomfortable, again, all you are seeing is that sort of autonomic control of your respiratory drive become dysregulated, and that's why. You, unless you really give someone sort of high doses of opioids to sedate that respiratory drive, you're not going to be able to change the rate because all it is is a dysregulation as it's shutting down and it's not uncomfortable to patients, but it is sort of really distressing to family members, certainly can be because it's it's such a change from normal. Um, but that's where that education and, and really looking and assessing someone who's not verbal and sort of saying, are they using their accessory muscles? Are they diaphoretic? Are they agitated? Are there other signs that they're sort of short of breath? If not, then this is a symptom of active dying. And it's not its not something that you need to actually fix. The This is kind of reminding me of the other main thing that was distressing um, for uh, more so for family members. I, I sort of knew this part was going to happen, but the whole not eating towards the end of life is Mm -hmm. I think, and not drinking is I think the hardest thing for people to, uh, for people to accept, because if we're feeding somebody, we feel, you know, I'm a parent, I feed my kids. I feel good that I'm, I'm doing something for them. I'm taking care of them. And, uh, the hospice company that we had was really great about just sort of stressing towards the end, you know, your family member probably will stop eating and drinking and that's okay. Don't force it. Just feed them if they're hungry or thirsty. But I do want to bullet point that for people that that is going to be one of the hardest parts for families to watch and that they should be made aware that that's going to happen. Absolutely, right? Food is love in our culture. There's a reason why mom's chicken soup is what makes you feel better when you have a cold. So, when someone is sick and, and sort of everything medically is, is out of control as far as, you know, what family members can do, one of the things that they can seize upon and, and do is is feed someone, right, is give them good nutrition. So that feels like one of the hardest, I think, last things for, for family members to feel okay letting go of. And and obviously the idea that I don't ever want to think that someone is starving to death, which, you know, you know is not happening. But emotionally, that is a really tough thing to shift your focus from because so much of course, sort of how we take care of people and bring a casserole when a new baby is there or when someone's sick, you bring over food, right? So, so much of how we care for people in a layman's sense is with food. And when you can't do that anymore for a loved one, it's, it's really, really distressing for family members. 
Brooke, anything else towards towards the end that we should be aware of? So we talked about terminal delirium, the death rattle. We talked about the the patient to stop eating and some of the breathing things that happen. Any other symptoms? I, I can't think of any from my experience, but that uh, I think every experience is different. Um, if a family member is dying from a painful cancer, it might be different than the experience I went through, which was a uh, a patient was actually dying of progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, which is a whole whole different thing. Um, so for someone dying from a solid organ cancer, would that differ in any way from what we've already talked about? No, not dramatically, right? So the pain that they sort of had from their cancer is going to con- you know, continue as they're dying, right? So you have to figure out how do I change the route or the delivery sort of system of their opioids to make sure that their pain still remains well controlled and, and certainly not going into any withdrawal if you if you stop it when they're no longer verbal. But um, in reality, you know, death is a universal experience, right? Our bodies know how to do this well. So there's obviously symptomatic variation in how that happens, but the the general kind of process of it, no matter what you're dying from when you get to that active dying phase is, is pretty similar um, for, for everybody. So there's nothing, you know, crazy outside of, of what we talked about that is, is a common thing. And Brooke, if I, if I might ask, just as a, as a primary care doctor, um, in terms of, you know, we sort of talked about how family and sort of the immediate caregivers can sort of help at the end of life and, and sort of the role of hospice. What, how, how, what is your typical experience with the interaction of the primary care doctor? Like, what are their responsibilities and how do they best help sort of service the, the hospice team and, and the patient and the patient's family? Because it feels Great almost question. like a handoff at times, if you know what I mean. Like, sometimes it's sort of like, well, like, they're on hospice yeah, now, and now we right. see what happens. But what's the best way they can be supportive without sort of getting in the way? I mean, I'll be honest. I don't think anyone's going to get in the way ever, right? If you're a primary care doctor who has any kind of relationship with this patient or family, you know, be involved to the extent that you can and you want to. Sometimes that's staying on board as the hospice physician. I mean, you know, there's always a hospice physician, but there has to be that second physician. And you can be more active in talking with the hospice nurses, you know, managing things if you feel comfortable or talking with families. Um, But in reality, just from a non-abandonment perspective, a primary care doctor knows this person way better than anyone that's coming in from hospice ever will. So please don't just feel like it's walking away. Um, That wife or that husband after their significant other passes away is, is going to have, you know, mild to moderate to severe PTSD, depending on how they were prepped, what was going on, the experience, all of that. And then that leads to neglect of their own health. And I think one of the sort of things that happen that is is a real thing is that people feel like then their physicians otherwise abandon them, right? So someone's dying and, and the rest of us just walk away. So I think uh, a primary care doctor, um, an internist in the hospital that knows this person well, if whatever your comfort and time and schedule permits, stay involved. Even if you have no idea what to say or do, just reach out. Just how are you doing, I think, can sometimes go so far because we all know that like the effect that um, 
I think a, a doctor's connection or words or just checking in can actually have on like, wow, look how much they cared. Um, so I think that's vital. Nicely said. Paul, you, you remind me of the question I always get when someone is finally deciding to pull the trigger and, and go on to home hospice. They always ask, what does that mean for my medications? Can I still call you? Will you still be my doctor? And a lot of the times I'll tell them, if you want you can keep your medications. I can keep refilling them. Um, the ones I can tell you which ones are, you know, for what causes and which ones are just for symptoms. If you want, we can just treat symptoms or if you want to keep taking your blood pressure medications, that's fine. And some patients, I've had some patients go on just, usually they're sicker and they'll just go on just symptomatic meds. But I, I had a lady in residency who I refilled her meds, maybe a six month supply and her creatinine was like four and her BUN was a hundred and she didn't want dialysis. And she called me six months later for refills. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe, <laughs> I can't believe you're still alive. Um, it was, yeah, it was uh, crazy. So it was, it was nice to, t I should have kept closer touch with her because I was just so happy to hear from her at that point. Yeah, no, that validates what I feel. And this is a rare moment of sincerity. So you can cut this out if you want, but like, I, I genuinely feel like a lot of the times the patient interaction and just sitting and talking is far more therapeutic than any of the medications that we agonize over and the randomized control trials we sort of pour through. I think just having the talk and actually being present um, is probably more healing than virtually anything else that we do. So just that's in keeping with my own personal philosophy. Yeah, I, I agree so much. I mean, I think um, evidence-based medicine is, is critical to our, you know, being on point and trying to take care of patients well. But I think at the end of the day, you know, I can prescribe. And I feel like, honestly, guys, I feel like, you know, our training taught me this so well in, in a different perspective. But I can prescribe 10 blood pressure medications to someone. But if I don't get that, like, their housing is in jeopardy, their extra $3 a month goes to helping their granddaughter get, you know, whatever she needed for school and the three buses that she had to come take to see me sort of didn't allow her to actually remember to take this complex regimen. It just, it sort of all gets lost, right? So just kind of connecting in, in some way on like, how is, what is life for you? I think you end up sort of taking care of people so much better. Brooke, we've taken a lot of your time. I think this is a good natural ending point. I'm sure there's a couple things we missed, but uh, audience, you can reach out to me and uh, I'll, I'll try to answer your questions or I'll send them to Brooke if there's anything, any glaring omissions. Brooke, at this point, I'd like to give Paul a chance to ask any final questions. And if not, we'll ask you for your take-home points for the listeners. Yeah, I just one, you, you brought up a point a while back that I, I regret not interrupting then. But it was a little bit about cancer survivorship and palliative care. And I feel like mm -hmm. survivorship is something that is often neglected. You know, like, well, cancer is done. We did it, guys. And then we don't really think about it much anymore. Where the patient, I'm sure, thinks about it a lot. So I, I was just wondering what the role of palliative care is with survivorship and, and what that looks like, if you don't mind talking about that. Yeah, great question. I mean, I think so, so much in that kind of acute crisis stage is like, don't die, don't die, don't die. And then it's, right. oh, my God, yeah, you didn't die. And everybody's like, okay, job done. And the patient is sort of left as this swirling vortex settles down with like, 
wait, what's going on now, right? So nothing is the same as it was before, and I might have sort of significant treatment-related side effects or surgical kind of post-surgical comorbidities now or, or, or significant morbidity that is left with like, how do I live with this? How do I kind of go on from here? So I think that's becoming an increasingly sort of unexplored avenue that we need to sort of figure out, like, how do we help you live with a life that's completely different than it was before, but maximizing quality of life and now sort of looking at a harm reduction model too, right? Because you didn't die. So it does behoove us to talk about like, maybe smoking cigarettes now doesn't really make a lot of sense. Let's look for the long game and let's sort of talk about that emotional sort of impact of what cancer has had. So that's, I think, becoming one of, of my sort of more favorite areas of unexplored sort of how do we do this well, because it's, it's increasingly new, right? We're doing better at keeping people alive, but there's side effects of that. So I think that's sort of how palliative care kind of lends itself to, to that arena and then kind of reattaching that person to their primary care doctor and, and sort of looking to the long game. Great. Anything else, Paul, before we go on to the take home points? Oh, that's it. Okay, Brooke. Uh, what are what are some take home points? Maybe two or three for our listeners to remember. Okay, that's tough. Two or three. So there is a difference between hospice and palliative care, um, and I think you should know that and help make your patients and, and families aware of that, so that not everybody feels like we're only talking about dying. I think the biggest sort of pearl to communicating and serious kind of difficult conversations and serious illness is stop using your doctor brain and and use your sort of human being brain and connect with people a little bit where they are and what they're hoping for um, and what they're worried about with life and their illness. And then be aggressive with recognition and treatment of kind of those unique end-of-life symptoms and, and more importantly, be aggressive about educating family members for, for what to expect because sort of caring for someone while they're dying is, is a very unique experience that um, none of us have a good sense of, of what it is until we're doing it from both sides of the fence. Okay, Brooke. So that that's pretty much it. I'll I'll edit it up. I mean, I actually don't think I'm going to have to really cut stuff out. Usually, when Stuart's here, he usually says some inappropriate stuff <laughs> that I have to cut out. Oh, I'm sorry, I missed him. I, I will potentially uh, want to have you back in the future to talk about more of the pain management stuff. Cool. Maybe maybe in the distant future, I'll give you a very long break from from Paul and I bombarding <laughs> you with questions. Thank you. Have okay. a good night, guys. Bye. Thanks for coming. All right, bye. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You should also sign up to receive our monthly newsletter at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. You'll receive key tools, tips, and tricks to change your practice. 
And also, we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. So to do that, we want your input. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Uh, <laughs> Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I remain Paul Williams. Good night.